The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu, Jason has the pleasure of reviewing Mandy. We're going to do our bottom five film freakouts before we give you a little bit of staff pick. And Jason tells me what film I have to watch for our upcoming episode. But before we get to any of that, why don't we go ahead and roll the trailer for Mandy. Crimson, primordial sky, the wretched warlock reached into the dark embrace. His fist closed around the serpent's eye. Strange and eternal. I need you to get me that girl I saw. Do you know what to do? So, Jason... Mm. here's the big question what is mandy about is mandy about anything because it has a reputation for being nick cage just screaming in his (laughs) underpants i have to think the plot synopsis is a little bit bigger than that but you tell me here's ostensibly what mandy is about in 1983 red miller played by nicholas cage is a lumberjack (laughs) Let's just stop right there. <laughs> Nick Cage Lumberjack. Nick Cage Lumberjack. There's your elevator pitch. <laughs> That's what got it made, man. Everything else was just cocaine and fucking insanity after that. They, he lives in uh, the woods of Oregon in a place called the Shadow Mountains with his lady, Mandy. Uh, while on a walk one day, Mandy is passed by a van full of drugged up children of the New Dawn disciples. <laughs> just out and about. The disciples. Yeah, just just discipling. The leader is named Jeremiah, and he becomes instantly infatuated with her when he sees her. So two of these cult members are ordered to summon the Black Skulls, who are these leather-slash-PBC-clad biker demons. This is exhausting. I, I I'm, I'm exhausted by this explanation. So the Black Skulls and the cult members break into Red and Mandy's home, abduct them, bring them back to uh, Children of the New Dawn HQ. Right. (laughs) And then they proceed to put hallucinogenic drugs into Mandy's system through eye drops and then sting her with a giant wasp. And, And she starts tripping balls. And while she does, we go into a 45 year explanation of just how powerful Jeremiah is. Most of my natural life was spent watching this one sequence. Yeah, I, am... I can tell you're still there right now. You are here, but you are also still experiencing that. Finally, Jeremiah kind of wraps it up and whips his schlong out. Mandy laughs, humiliating him. And then they kill Mandy in front of Nicolas Cage's character, Red. Big mistake. He's been stabbed, Christ-like, in the side, and then he's left to die wherever they are. 
like Cage very messily gets out of his binds, then goes home and essentially nurses his wounds and his savage tart with vodka while screaming in a bathroom, which I guess is the real freak out moment in this movie. Uh, the signature a, freak out. The signature freak out. Yes, that's right. From there, you know, the following morning, he winds up at the mobile home of Bill Duke, who plays a guy named Carruthers that for some reason has, quote, the Reaper, which is Nicolas Cage's crossbow. And there's there's this whole thing with, like, who is Red? He's not just some lumberjack. He's clearly somebody who has a past because he has the Reaper crossbow. He also randomly and without any explanation fashions out of melting silver a battle axe in the woods and then he goes hunting for the black skulls and the children of the new dawn and the rest of the movie is just pretty much devoted to him avenging mandy's death through various really violent psychedelic means it's a hard movie to talk about because it's so trippy and that you know when you lay out the synopsis I'm like oh yeah okay technically all of those things are true yeah but none of that is in the movie mm-hmm. even though it is in the movie the movie's not about any of those things it's like an excuse to get from one scene to the next and it's almost like well a movie has to have some kind of story. So how do we explain why there's a chainsaw fight? How do we explain biker guys? We don't really have to. Let's just have them. And it's it's exhausting. It's just exhausting. You know what it reminds me of is if you if you were to write a movie by taking a pool table and on each one of the balls, you write a plot point. <laughs> and then you take the white ball and you put Nicolas Cage on it and then you just slam it in and you watch them go into the pockets. And every time something goes into the pocket, that's the that's the thing that's going to go in the movie first. And that's how it went. It's that incredibly random and lazy and sluggish. So, yeah. Mad Libs the movie. Mad Libs the movie. It's a film with a reputation that precedes it. This is a movie known for being a freak out and something that I think could safely be qualified as already a bit of a cult classic. This movie is something that got a lot of attention very quickly, almost a, hey, have you seen Mandy yet sort of thing. And a lot of people really, I don't know because they were all sitting at home when this movie was released and it just spread like insane wildfire. But Mandy is a film that mostly lives and breathes off its color and its camera work and the screaming. And I think it's a movie that tries to top itself with each subsequent scene as it goes. Uh, Is this a movie that you think deserves that (laughs) reputation? Why did so many people make such a big deal out of Mandy? You know what? It's a movie for people that love the ending of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and who love The Evil Dead 2. And they want to see that shit married together for some reason. And preferably they get to watch it while they're on something mind altering. You know, I even I tried with this viewing as this was my second, I started the movie with a full bottle of wine and decided that every time I got pissed off, I was going to take a drink. And by about mm, 35, 40 minutes in, the bottle was mostly gone. 
So I watched the second half of the movie in a bit of a haze. I think that's a big part of this movie, right? I think it's that the only part of you're it. supposed to be on something while you yeah. watch it. I saw this movie entirely straight. Yeah, so Strangely, uh, I went to our local beautiful movie house here at 10 o'clock at night. I thought I was meeting somebody that I was not meeting. Don't try to make new friends in your 40s. And I ended up watching it nearly alone in this gorgeous historic theater, stone sober. And as the movie goes on, it almost seems like the director is trying to outdo himself scene to scene. And it felt like it wanted me to feel like I was under the influence of something. And that was almost the point. The movie seemed to me like I was supposed to question my own reality through watching it. It seemed very forced. I just, there's no... I don't think that I would give the director that much credit. Panos Cosmatos, in this case, had no real handle on his story. He wanted to pump it full of weird religious allegory that he thought was kind of neat, but he also wanted to do a gross out. And he had no idea how to balance those whatsoever. So I don't think he was trying to even outdo himself. I think he was just like, <laughs> wouldn't the fucking be neat if, you know, and then they did it. And, you know, a chainsaw battle is completely absurd. But that's the thing that everybody talks about is being so bitching and cool. There's this sequence where the bad guy falls on his own chainsaw. And you don't really see it. You don't really see what happens? All of a sudden, he's just splayed on top of something, and there's a bunch of blood kind of coming out from underneath him. And that's the sort of shortcuts that Mandy does all throughout its running time. For instance, instead of doing practical effects, which, by the way, when they do practical effects, they're pretty good. But it's almost like they didn't have the budget, so they went with animation, or they, they couldn't get the lead actress that played Mandy to take off her clothes, so they used animation. So there are these weird animated segments that come out of nowhere and they're completely unmotivated. And the character of Red is so under, everything is undercooked. Every single character is undercooked. They're all very thin. The The relationship with between Mandy and Red, I think their pillow talk consists of, there's two scenes. One where they're discussing their favorite planet. And then the other scene is when she talks about some sort of really damaging childhood trauma involving the murder of starlings. And I'm just like, and that's all you get really before they're abducted. You get nothing about red other than, but at certain points it's, it's almost like on set Nick Cage decided, Hey, why don't I do a little bit of the, the, the black skulls cocaine that's on the table. None of it's dramatically motivated. There's no logic. There's no, there's no concept of story or, or you know, it, it just doesn't care. It's a revenge thriller like those old 70s revenge thrillers, but it doesn't even really focus in a competent way on the violence. It's just a mess. It's a mess. When you sit back and you try to analyze it, it's filled with dumb things like, you know, Nicolas Cage lights a cigarette off the burning head of an enemy at one point. It... it there's just a lot of alleged badass moments. It's stupid, Mike. You hit the nail on the head. This movie is a dumb 
mess. And that's exactly why I picked it for you, because I see it as a film that goes from dumb set piece to dumb set piece. You're right. It, it's very bro in that way. You know, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Wouldn't it be cool? Okay, we did an axe. Now we need a chainsaw. Now, and it, it wants to sort of outdo its own coolness all the way. And it is empty and hollow to me. I don't really understand why so many people went gaga for this movie other than the movie really wants you to. You this movie is begging you to go gaga for it and it is hollow and dumb. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it really does try to be cool. I think that's the big thing. I don't agree that it always tries to outdo itself. Again, I think they just throw whatever they can at the screen, but the fact is, this is a movie that wants to be seen as edgy and cool or dirty and grimy and intense. And it reminds me so much of all the crap that Rod Zombie puts out. It, and I know your feelings about him. This movie plays as a Rob Zombie movie in many respects. The These characters, these uh, children of the new dawn characters don't even seem to belong in the same movie together, never mind in the same cult. And if you go through the cast list of, of these folks, these, these, these types that all exist together, a couple of them are right out of, straight out of a Rob Zombie style movie. You know, the the bedraggled old concubine that's Pastor Prime. That's that is pure Rob Zombie character right there. For sure. You know, the same with that guy that reminds me of um he reminds me of Malachi from Children of the Corn, you know, or or uh the Jeremiah himself. He's kind of like a Rudger Hauer had a baby with William Fitner. It's like, it's just a really, they're really grimy, dirty, ugly people. But then you got this weird guy that looks like Lance Henriksen mixed with David Morrison. The guy just looks like a, he looks like a divorced dad from like an 80s comedy that owns an auto body shop. You know the guy I'm talking about? I do. What is, none of these, and then there's that one guy, the new, the new dude, right? He's like a heavy set guy. He looks like. Do you remember in the movie The Fifth Element? Indeed. Do you remember there was an actor who was deaf and he had you know, a weird 17th century haircut or whatever? He was wearing one of those those powdered wigs. Yeah. I swear to God, I thought it was that guy at first when I saw them in the van together. That character? Straight out of The Fifth Element? <laughs> Straight out of The Fifth you. Element. Just would have made Mandy better, honestly. By the end of it, I felt a little like Red or maybe Nicolas Cage himself, because there's this moment in the movie where one of the bad guys he murders, like vomits all over his face. He vomits blood all over his face. And the way that Nicolas Cage acts in that moment, it's as if he realized suddenly what he was doing with his career by being in this movie. You saw this realization kind of splash over him as the blood. Oh shit, I'm in Mandy. So, you know, by the end of it, I think I felt like him. And I, I wasn't sure what I was or why I was or how I was or even when I was. All I knew was that I knew who I was. And that is a person who hates Mandy in movies like it, who sees these as one part drug-induced high-mindedness and one part fanboy, oh, look how cool my chainsaw duel is. That is Mandy. And that is why I hate it. (laughs) 
Jason, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I have any better idea what Mandy is or is not about. I just know that it made you angry. And (laughs) one of the things I love the most about you is just a pure, classic, good old fashioned Jason Santo freak out. Hmm. I have had front row seats for Santo freak outs for years. In fact, if I had thought more about it, maybe that would have been the thing that I put on my list. But we decided to go ahead and do our bottom five freakouts. I have to think that you and I approached this list a little differently, and I'm excited to see what you got on yours. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't include myself on my own list, although I think my best freakout will always be during Terminator Salvation, where I had held my breath through the entire movie and had been so well-behaved. And then near the very end, there was a certain plot reveal, and all you heard was, The palm slap heard around the world (laughs) as you interrupted the movie for an entire theater of rapt audience members with your absolute displeasure. And I had to sit there slinking in my seat like, oh, no, he's going to do the thing. You're an unbelievable liar because the thing my slap is not the thing that distracted anybody. Your laughter was the thing. (laughs) Well, I think that this list is a perfect explanation for why I like doing bottom five lists because we have to now differentiate between a top five freakout and a <laughs> bottom five freakout. Anybody can come up with a top five freakout, right? A good big movie freakout. Cameron losing his shit in Ferris Bueller's day off. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore from network. And of course, Clark Griswold's hallelujah. Holy shit. Where's the Tylenol? Which is undoubtedly cinema's greatest example of a freakout. But figuring out the difference between a good freakout and a bad freakout takes some real brain power. So while Clark Griswold doesn't make the bottom five, I'm staying with the Christmas theme for my five spot because here I'm going with Billy Chapman's Santa-inspired freakout and subsequent killing spree in the delightfully insane Silent Night, Deadly Night (laughs) from 1984. This is a movie that I think has crept a little closer to cult classic status in recent years because of the recent popularity of holiday horror flicks, things like Krampus. In this one, when Billy's a little kid, his terrifying and clearly Looney Tunes grandfather tells him that Santa punishes bad people. And then, shitty coincidence here, on the drive home from visiting grandpa, a guy dressed as Santa Claus murders his father, rapes and kills his mother, right in front of him. Billy is raised in a Catholic orphanage where he's abused by mother superior who instills the idea that bad behavior must be punished. And big surprise to nobody. As soon as Billy is 18 and gets a whiff of Christmas, he flies off the deep end and murders nine people (laughs) dressed of course, as jolly old St. Nick, this movie rules. As silly a concept as it is, it's actually dark as fuck. The lovely Linnea Quigley gets impaled on a set of deer antlers. (laughs) But probably the best part of this Yuletide freak show is that it spawned five sequels, a remake, another remake on the way. There's a Kickstarter for a board game. And yet the honest and true freak out here might be my own because despite all those goddamn sequels, not a single one of them is called It's a Wonderful Knife. And I don't know. Am I, do I have to do all the work here? 
<laughs> That's classic. It absolutely needs to be. <laughs> That's great. It's an interesting choice. And I think you really do, with the, your approach, discuss the exact reason why I didn't do the list that you did. Because we get into a, our bottom five concept gets really quirky when it's considering something negative. Like if you take our bottom five assholes episode, which presented us with the issue of having to figure out who were the worst assholes we could think of. Right. Only a worst asshole is, as you put it, Mike, a good guy (laughs) instead of an asshole. We have a real double double negative negative challenge. Right. We were actually in some ways applauding the performances of these assholes, which sort of makes it a best of list. So exactly. That's I was trying to stay away. We, We persevered with those assholes basically by being people who would be at the bottom of our list in terms of anyone we'd want to meet. Right. So, Nurch Ratchet, Harry Ellis, that dad from society who literally becomes an asshole. An we actual don't, asshole. <laughs> don't want to know him. <laughs> so, for bottom five freakouts, I didn't want to present a list of great performances featuring people losing their shit. And finding five piss-poor, over-the-top, lost-shit scenes seemed to almost all belong to Nicolas Cage, who... Indeed. Oh, got- yeah, this is... <laughs> this is the Nick Cage tribute list. Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, the whole Oh yeah, absolutely. God bless him. He turns into HI from Raising Arizona in Mandy because he's in a mobile home. <laughs> I think and I wondered to myself when he when he suddenly just snapped into HI mode. I wondered if it's every time he's in a mobile home that he just clicks and starts going, well, honey. <laughs> like, it just Do you think that Nick Cage is just disassociating everywhere he goes with his former roles? Like one minute he thinks he's the ghost rider if he sees a motorcycle. The next minute he's HI again. He's stealing the U.S. Declaration of Independence whenever he goes to D.C. Maybe that's just it. He's just living in each character. I just hope he never ends up in a garden somewhere and turns into his character from the Wicker Man. Not the bees! <laughs> Clearly an option for my list. I didn't go with it. But this is one of the things I like about you and I is I can count on you to take a different approach for things. Yeah, yeah. I know that when I'm going to do some of the big performances, I always know that you're not going to take that easier road. I think because yeah. of your background as a filmmaker, you see a freak out a little bit differently. I'm curious how you made your yep. list. Yeah. So for me, freakouts are defined as sequences where the filmmaker went bonkers and it led to crap results. A true bottom five where like the whole of Mandy, the artistry just misfires. So my number five, <laughs> immediately people are going to be so pissed off about this, but it's true. My number five is 2001 A Space Odyssey, (laughs) directed by Stanley Kubrick and considered one of the greatest movies ever made. Fuck you, the ending sucks. I'm sorry. The Stargate sequence of that movie is a cop-out. It is supposed to be an allegory or a a representation of the evolution of man and the rebirth of us as as an entire species, potentially. You know, it's supposed to be alien sentience that's aiding us along to the next step of our evolution. However you want to define it, really what it was, and even Warner Brothers marketing figured it out pretty quickly. People like to get high and watch this thing. Yep. (laughs) And as somebody who doesn't like to get high and watch things, who doesn't care at all about that sort of thing, I was pretty let down by the ending of this rather 
fascinating, complex, way too long and turgidly paced movie. Here they were, near the end of the film. You get to the HAL 9000 computer. It's killing people. (laughs) And suddenly, Dave Bowman is in space and traveling through this hallucinatory star field with all this craziness happens. And I just felt let down. Why did they leave the whole plot behind? Everything that you went through, this decade that it took for you to get to the end of the story, and you get this. It felt lame. It felt like it was an unrealized idea. It felt as though it was incidental. And I turned to none other than Pauline Kael, the legendary film reviewer for The New Yorker and McCall's, who wrote this scathing, an absolutely scathing review of 2001 when it came out. But in it, she says this, the light show trip is of no great distinction compared to the work of experimental filmmakers like Jordan Belson. It's third rate. If big film directors are to get credit for doing badly what others have been doing brilliantly for years with no money, just because they put it on a big screen, then businessmen are greater than poets and theft is art. Well, I can't say it as well as Pauline Kael did, and that is why it is my number five. I think that's a completely fantastic choice. I think if you're going to make a list the way you chose to make a list, I sort of can't believe this is all the way back at number five for you. And I'm excited (laughs) to see what you have coming up. You know, for me, it's not just about a great performance and a freak out, but it has to have consequence. It has to be something that has a purpose in the story, not just a guy yelling, which is why I don't have any Nick Cage freak outs because anybody can just scream on the camera. I want a freak out to have consequence. And that's why for me, number four is from a movie I consider an absolute one timer. You see it once and you'll never see it again. Not because you hated it, but because you're not sure you can stomach it a second time. Some of the most effective films are one timers and Darren Aronofsky's 2000 film Requiem for a dream is absolutely a one-time movie for me. So my pick here is Ellen Burstyn's descent into insane amphetamine psychosis. She's hallucinating. She thinks the refrigerator is attacking her. She ends up committed, given electroconvulsive shock therapy, and ultimately ends up catatonic. My only real question after that description is, how is this not my number one? It's such a good performance. Ellen Burstyn, she's had a hard time on screen over the years. Film has really put poor Ellen Burstyn through the ringer. But this scene with the lipstick on her teeth and she's hallucinating that she's going on this game show. And man, Requiem for a Dream is a movie where it just starts dark and gets worse and you just feel bad by the end of it. And it is so effective at what it's trying to do. But watching Ellen Burstyn just descent into this insane psychosis is hard to watch was really affecting and left a mark on me which is ultimately why it landed on my list it's a it's an incredible performance and it is illustrative of the point that i was trying to make with these bottom five lists i think when i think of your list and as you're describing it to me now these are the bottom five freakouts that we as human beings would never, ever, ever want to experience. Absolutely. The worst (laughs) freakouts that could happen. And absolutely, when you think of that movie, 
almost everything that happens in that movie. I love that you called it a one-time watcher because that really is what it is. You can't possibly go back to that movie and re-experience a lot of what it has to offer. It's harrowing. Well, (laughs) in a complete shift of gears... (laughs) I'm going to reveal my number four. And look, you know, there's no question that Joe Dante knows how to make good movies. You know, The Howling, Inner Space, The Burbs, the original Gremlins is a zippy, fun and mean horror movie with a high concept and a healthy dose of both reverence and side eye for middle America and consumerism. You know, Dante avoided making a sequel until Warner Brothers granted him a huge budget with carte blanche something that he made them pay dearly for with the two-hour cinematic prank called Gremlins 2. Yep, at number four, it's Gremlins 2. I don't hate this movie. It's irreverent and bonkers, and it's an off-its-rocker exercise in broad satire that trolls the original movie mercilessly. But it barely continues the story of the characters from the first movie while moving them to the big city. And... That move to the big city just made everything bigger, louder, more chaotic, more unhinged. And at a certain point, I just found it unwatchable. At a certain point, all of these skits and these vignettes and this weirdness just adds up to something that really isn't funny after a while. It just feels unmoored in its central concept, especially once you start getting these hybrids and everything. Look, I know Dante spoke a lot about his intentions with the sequel and how it's essentially a tribute to the cartoon and B-movie influences of his youth and how it acts as a middle finger to Hollywood execs that were more focused on movies as properties than as art. And, you know, they wanted a sequel, not because there was any more story to tell, but because they wanted more money. So fine, here was your sequel, right? <laughs> so I think what careful was, what, what you really, wish for. Absolutely, and you know I think Key and Peele did an infamous and super funny skit about the pitch meeting for Gremlins Two, detailing the in- inanity of this crossbred Gremlins concept that appears in the movie. But the only mistake they made in their retelling of the film's creation is that Joe Dante wasn't in on the joke. For sure, he was, and that doesn't make Gremlins Two any better. It really is dumb and loud. It put my senses in overload and it went on for way too long. And then, of course, and I have to bring this up because you're such a fan, but it does reach <laughs> it does reach a level of pure idiocy when the film itself is literally interrupted by the mischievous creatures monkeying around in the projection booth and it falls to none other than a wild-eyed Hulk Hogan to shout at them to resume the movie with him, of course, ripping off his shirt. It's fun, yeah. But as cinematic freakouts go, this one does land pretty far near the bottom for as a failure for storytelling. You know, it's it's a it's a riff on excess that in it of itself is way too excessive. The movie wears out its welcome. I think Big time. That little bit, it's nice to get back into the Gremlins world and it's mm-hmm. fun to see your characters again and Gizmo. And when it gets going, you're kind of excited for that zaniness that you got in the first Gremlins. And and then it keeps going and it keeps going and it becomes almost a, a parody of itself. And by the end, you just 
you've stopped. It's the joke that doesn't end. And so it never comes back around to being funny again. And by the end of Gremlins 2, you can't wait for the end of Gremlins 2. It's so true. Number three for me is from 1993's Falling Down, where Michael (laughs) Douglas goes absolutely apeshit after missing breakfast by three minutes at the Whammy Burger. Dude just wants a breakfast sandwich before noon. That's all. But he gets turned down first by the cashier, then by the manager with a shit-eating grin. And so he does the only reasonable thing a fella can do in that situation, which is he pulls out a machine gun, he holds the whole place hostage, and he gets his goddamn food. Honestly, this movie could fill an entire list. The whole thing is just one freak out after another. But this scene might honestly be one of the best scenes Joel Schumacher ever shot. Hmm. It's my number three. I think if you haven't seen Falling Down and you want to understand the things that could push a person to absolutely losing it, just a regular guy. And, you know, here we are in a world where it seems like people are being less kind and less patient. The line at the drive through is longer than it's ever been. The person at the window seems less competent. And certainly the people getting the service are more rude and entitled than they've ever been. I can kind of understand a world where... Yeah, maybe uh, maybe I just want my breakfast sandwich. And if I don't get it, there's going to be a machine gun in this duffel bag. <laughs> I still have problems with that movie. I, I, I As much as I think that that is a quality freak out, and I think a lot of it is attributable to the very solid direction of Joel Schumacher, a guy who gets lambasted a lot for being a hack, who really did a lot of quality work during his career. Yes, like many, he faltered you know but i think that it's important when he got it right he got it when he got it right he got it right like a time to kill yep the lost boys absolutely and and falling down is well directed but i do have a problem with um the sort of white man rage and the 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 things that oh absolutely yeah it's just kind of it's one of those things I, i i don't know if i haven't revisited it since the time of its release and i'm not sure how the hell it would hang now in these times so Probably not great. I think it's absolutely a product of 1993. For sure. And I certainly think today you'd be like, oh, poor Michael Douglas. This middle-class white guy isn't getting his breakfast when he wants it. Boo-hoo for you, pal. But boy, it's a great scene. Well, for my number three, we're going back to 1979 at a time when Walt Disney Pictures decided to really change things up and released their first PG-rated movie, of all time. And that would be the black hole, uh, the directed by Gary Nelson. This movie is just incredibly stupid. And yet through the art direction, through the really amazing music score by John Barry, the pretty high caliber of the cast that are involved in the movie. It is interesting. It is involving this movie somehow manages to weave an interesting spell until it gets to the end. Now, 2001 definitely put into place the trippy cinematic freakout ending. The Black Hole pretty much wholesale tries to do a Stargate level sequence out of 2001. And instead, the survivors of, the, of this ship travel into a black hole, which turns a violent orange because of a bunch of meteorites that flew into it. 
And then they wind up in hell, essentially. Or at least we as the viewers do. And we see the film's villain, Dr. Heinz Reinhardt, actually merge with his killer bot, his murder bot named Maximilian. And they become one. And then they end up on a mountain that overlooks all of these dead souls that it, it looks like hell out of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It is, you know, regular Disney stuff. It is so fucking weird. But what was really interesting was, you know, 40, 40th anniversary rolls around in 2019. Gary Nelson's interviewed and he basically says they never had a proper ending. So they pretty much did this crazy wrap up and post and it's really, it's just a shame because I think there's probably a way to have made the black hole into a really cool movie. I heard a couple of years ago that there might be a remake coming of it. And I was like, oh, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be really good if they actually try to use some of the cool science involving um, and maybe improve upon Interstellar, which also had a kind of trippy fucked up ending as well. Maybe it's something with black holes. I don't know. <laughs> That's a great pick. Black holes are kind of like rugby. Everybody thinks they know how it works. Nobody knows how it works. My number two freak out is here because it's an event that created perhaps cinema's greatest villain. Certainly it's most iconic. It's also a double whammy because the execution of this super critical moment in one of the biggest franchises of all time sucks so, so bad. Oh. It's that shitty scene in that shitty Star Wars prequel where a shitty Anakin Skywalker, played by an even shittier Hayden Christensen, goes off the deep end and slaughters a village full of Tusken Raiders, women and children included, thus crossing the point of no return into becoming Darth fucking Vader. When you flip your lid, massacre a village, and become the Dark Lord of the Sith, that is a bottom five freakout. That is, you have had a bad day at the office. <laughs> I remember many, many, many years ago, before the prequel was released... Before any of them, I think, were released, potentially, I read the synopsis for Attack of the Clones, and I believed in my heart of hearts that it was not only going to be a great movie, that it might be one of the greatest movies ever made. When it came out, my level of disappointment reached lower than the bottomest point on Earth. Oh, I could Everything about that second movie is a fucking failure i despise it it's I, so and, and I, bad that to me is a truly fucking terrible bottom five freak out it's poorly acted it's poorly everything about it but the core idea behind it still to this day lives inside me is like what a perfect thing to have happen and you oh. nailed both of the reasons why it was on my list yeah for me this is easily a bottom five freak out because everything that came after hinges on this moment and they botched it in the film. Well, my number two comes from none other than one David Lynch. And look, asking for a David Lynch movie to make sense is like asking for a well done steak in Texas. You might be killed for even saying it out loud. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> Lynch. <laughs> Lynch wheels and deals in impressionistic dreamscapes, careening pretty wildly between nightmares and that 1950s-esque soda fountain vibe that he likes to get. Yeah. 
Mulholland Drive is a prime example of his output. It's often frightening, but it's also frustratingly mysterious. And it, it's plot involving amnesiac actresses and the evil they do. Yeah, that's about as much as I can really figure without having to <laughs> read some pretty deep essays. But in this movie, as good as a lot of it is, and I mean, I really do love Mulholland Drive, maybe for 95% of its running time. At a certain point, it just goes too far. And it, for me, this was the first step in Lynch's career where he did something and it seemed like he just didn't care. He didn't care about the ending of this movie. And again, it seems like I'm coming up with like the, wor the, the worst cinematic endings rather than yeah, the worst. Yeah, you seem to be really hung up on people not sticking the landing. And I think the reason why so many of these do arrive at the end is because they got a lot of momentum behind them. And then they resort to a cinematic freak up to wrap it up. In this case, Naomi Watts' character is haunted by these visions, this, this elder couple that have appeared throughout the movie. And then randomly they show up as tiny little people that come and crawl out from under a door and they're sort of tormenting her. And then she runs away from them and then she goes and shoots herself and weird piped in black smoke blows into the room from behind her bed in a very obvious smoke machine way. It all feels so clumsily patched together, so hastily assembled that I can't forgive it as a cinematic freakout. I can't forgive it for the wildness of it, the weirdness, the wackiness. It's not acceptable filmmaking. <laughs> Lynch has done this numerous times and he vacillates between being an absolute master of the craft. Honest to God, Mike, I can't think of another director who can make me feel something whenever he wants me to. If he wants to turn me on, he can put Laura Elena Herring on the screen and I'm captivated. I'm entranced. But then if he wants me to be terrified, two moments later, I will be terrified. I, my face will run cold because of something that he shows me on screen. This guy is a fucking master. Absolutely. And yet, and yet, throughout his career, after Mulholland Drive in particular, something like Inland Empire, a lot of the Twin Peaks The Return, he just seems like he doesn't give a fuck about what it looks like on screen. Eh, it's a proxy. It's approximating what's in my head. Fuck it. Yeah, just put it up there. And it always feels like him, but it feels cheap and, and bogus. And the ending of Mulholland Drive, this truly a weird <laughs> cinematic freakout for sure, just ruins what is otherwise a, a, a pretty amazing movie, a movie that somehow still earned a standing ovation at Cannes, if I'm not mistaken. And yet... I can't give give it that at home. I will say it takes a lot of courage to come onto a film podcast and say anything bad about David Lynch. That's yeah. sort of the third rail of film geeks, right? You're just, you're, he's Lynch is supposed to be off limits, but if we're being honest, yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. And I, I think the other third rail is, is Stanley Kubrick. And I seem to have grabbed that one earlier too. So fearless. You are fearless. fearless. That's for sure. Well, I guess if we're going to talk about movies that are off limits for criticism, absolutely my number one is going to be one of those films. 
because this is a scene that flips perhaps the second greatest freak out of all time, second only to Clark Griswold, and turns it into possibly the worst. I'm going a little outside the box here and picking the edited for television version of Walter Subcheck's Do You See What Happens, Larry? Freak Out from The Big Lebowski. For this one, let's roll a clip because you just have to hear it. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? That's what happens. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens, Larry? That's what happens when you feed them scrambled eggs. What happens, Larry? Do you see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? <laughs> this is what happens, Larry, when you feed a stranger scrambled eggs. I don't even know what to say about that. One day, we will do our bottom five TV edits. And spoiler alert, this will be my number one mm -hmm. for that list, too. How is it somebody's job to figure out, okay, we have, first off, why would you show The Big Lebowski on television? That that movie is almost 90% curse words, but it's somebody's <laughs> job to rearrange the swear words in the movie. And they come up with, this is what happens when you feed a stranger scrambled eggs. I always assumed, and you would know this better than anybody, that the Coens were in on it and that they wrote that stuff and that they had it voiced because it seemed to me to be so wildly off that it was, they were being ironic or, or just... If the Coens had a hand in it at all, I imagine it would have everything to do with them being to the fabric of their creative being opposed to somebody messing with the words they have on their page. Because in The Big Lebowski, as Jeff Bridges tells it, every, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, it, it might not be such a, uh, uh, all of those are written and they would back him up. Like, no, 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 there's three us there, not two, Jeff, that kind of thing. So if the Coens at all had a hand in having to pervert their own script, yeah, maybe that's the way they went. But I can't imagine that was the case here because this is just too ludicrous. <laughs> I love it. I always loved it. I thought it was, I honest to God, thought it was that. So that's interesting that that's your, that's your number one. It makes Very me insane. We it totally makes me different. insane. It totally makes no different. sense. It makes no sense. That's now, granted, perhaps one of the most difficult jobs you could have is to take a line like, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass and find a way to make that safe for daytime television. I don't know. I couldn't do any better, I suppose. But when you feed a stranger scrambled eggs is probably not what I would have come up with. Well, my number one for the bottom five freakouts is an entire movie. And you've already mentioned this movie once in one of your bottom fives. In fact, it may have been number one in your bottom five romances. I'm not sure, but it might've been. And that would be Natural Born Killers from 1994 by Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. Look, we both said it. We hate this movie, but it is Oliver Stone's ultimate cinematic freak out. And I feel like with a lot of my choices, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. But as we discussed, it really misses its point as satire. By embracing the violence in the media, it seeks to condemn, and it wicked plays fast and loose with campiness, while also trying to be as serious as a car accident. It's really fucking frustrating. It's a lot like Mandy in that respect, because sometimes it wants to be a B-movie with like really cartoonish violence and hyperkinetic camera movement, 
and then it mixes in Stone's usual topical gravitas. So the actors have no idea what they're doing. The camera has no idea. The soundtrack, the whole damn thing is 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 a mess. So for that reason, I put that as an absolute cinematic freakout that I cannot abide whatsoever. I know what you're doing, and it's not going to work. <laughs> I know that you're trying to trigger me. I know you're trying to get me to freak out. <laughs> I know that you know if you mention Natural Born Killers, I go off the deep end. I thought I almost had you there, but ah, oh, damn. Be- better luck next time. Maybe, maybe when I give you your movie that you have to watch next, maybe then. Before we get to that, though, we're going to go ahead and do our staff picks. This is that time in the show where you and I finally take a break from the stuff we dislike and give our listeners a couple of flicks that we enjoy, something to watch to cleanse the palate from all their mandiness. So, Jay, I'd love to hear from you right off the bat. What do you have this week for our listeners? Well, I spent the past entire week thinking about cinematic freakouts that I despised. I decided that uh, I would like to talk about one that I really love, and that's 1980s altered states. In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science, and the subject of the experiment is himself. This thing introduced an entire generation to sensory deprivation tanks, and just as likely scared that same entire generation from ever entering one. And the movie is sumptuous. It balances this rapid fire dialogue with these hallucinatory visions of God and the cosmos and evolution and nightmares, all while telling like a super deeply human story about a flawed man uh, portrayed with really believable eccentricity by William Hurt. And the woman that loves him, played by a strong-headed and very blunt Blair Brown. Also along for the ride, you got the always likable Bob Balaban as Jessup's best friend and co-conspirator, and the amazing Charles Hayde, who hilariously shouts his way through 80% of his scenes in a state of pretty understandable apoplexy. I can't recommend this movie enough. I can't recommend it to enough people. Hmm. It's basically looking to unlock the meaning of life itself. You know, but you could talk about that or you could talk about the jaw-dropping direction by Ken Russell, who infuriated screenwriter Patty Shayevsky so much with his choice to cross-cut and interrupt and frequently have the actors mumble dialogue that they just fought through the entire film's production. <laughs> and look, I adore Shayevsky's screenplay. Uh, he based it on his own novel. And I, I think he was a fool to have his name taken off the movie because of Russell. Um, I think that this thing just works on every level. Performances, cinematography, editing, sound design, the incredible score by John Caligliari. You know, just unbelievable flick. So sadly, it wasn't a super box office success and it it did get some decent critical notice. But that lack of success at the box office pretty much sank Russell's career, which is kind of funny because I don't think that was the only reason. (laughs) Part of it was his fighting with Shaevsky. And based on what we hear about the film's production, he was drunk most of the time while making it, (laughs) which probably explains the visuals in it. Because then there are some wacky, wacky visuals in this thing. Some really neat green screen work, some really interesting and creepy ass symbolism 
the one thing I just want to point out about this movie is the ending, which was so iconic, but yet I don't think people know it in its original form. And that's because the band AHA had a hit video on MTV called Take On Me. And that video's ending is 100% a ripoff of the ending of Altered States. It is such a powerful, impactful, energetic ending. And most people know it as the end of an kitschy 80s video that they saw when they were kids, when MTV used to actually play music videos. So my recommendation for this week, Altered States, a great cinematic freakout. That is an excellent pick. And I really hope that folks take your advice, pick that one up, because if they haven't seen it, I can't argue with any of that. And I feel a little silly even trying to chase you down now and give my staff pick, because I'm certainly not going to pose anything as passionate as what you just did and, and good on you. But my staff pick for this week is going to be maybe the first film I've talked about that directly relates to our pandemic life. For me, when the pandemic started, I couldn't do that thing a lot of people did, which was put on Contagion, the Soderbergh film. I went right to the Omega Man. The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. Discovered Chet. How does that grab you, Caesar? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting. Because the last man on Earth is not alone. Charlton Heston, Rosalind Cash, The Omega Man, rated GP. This is a movie based on the Richard Matheson book, I Am Legend. I'm not going to talk about that Will Smith movie. That movie is garbage, and I will fight anybody that tells me otherwise. That movie is garbage. Set that aside. Forget about it. The Omega Man is just pure 70s machismo and cheese for me it's just it sits in this sweet spot 1971 we haven't gone full bore cheesy 70s yet we're still playing with some really kind of fun ideas from the 60s but this coming together of heston this old hollywood you know chiseled face ben-hur sharing a screen with rosalind cash and fighting mutants in a weird way, sort of ushers in this new era of sci-fi. And unfortunately, I think here's the question that the film posed in 1971. What is the price of survival in a plague-ridden tomorrow? Oops, it's tomorrow. <laughs> and we're kind of living this, right? Fortunately, we didn't go as far as to have mutants in the streets, at least not yet anyway. There's still time. I think but that's debatable. <laughs> for what it's worth i love the omega man i think it's a That's fantastic great. movie i it's really so really good. enjoyed it yeah and it's one that certainly is an acquired taste i think for a lot of folks it sets such an interesting vibe especially when it contrasts against that hard guy with charlton has you don't often get an intersection of black exploitation and sci-fi and then you throw charlton heston into that and You've got a movie. That is a movie. It, that could have easily been Fred Williamson in that role. In a that Charlton. And, and yet the way that they did that, the way that they set it against type really makes it such ever more fascinating movie. So cool, cool pick, Mike.
Sometimes we pay for our mistakes, Mike. Director Colin Trevorrow knows perhaps better than either of us what it's like to really sincerely lose. In between blockbuster assignments, Trevorrow produced and directed a passion project so grossly inept that Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman wrote this about it. There's the kind of bad movie that just sits there, unfolding with grimly predictable monotony. Then there's the kind where the badness expands and metastasizes, taking on a jaw-dropping life of its own, pushing through to ever higher levels of garishness. This movie is of the latter. You've got to see it to disbelieve it variety. That movie, your pick for the next episode of Film Jitsu, The Book of Henry. Oh, no. I think this movie has something to do with a single mom and some weird kid, but it's not (laughs) E.T. So there's no aliens, I don't think. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Well, this is one of those movies that I, I, I don't know that I can react strongly to other than... I found it thoroughly uninteresting when I saw it came out, which is, as you say, Colin Trevorrow is a guy who was doing some pretty cool things. As a matter of fact, we were very close this week to me using safety, not guaranteed as a staff pick. Mm -hmm. I almost mentioned it before during our time travel movies. I think it's a fantastic movie. It is very strange that that's the film that launched him into the Jurassic park universe. So it is weird that the book of Henry showed up amidst all the dinosauring. I okay, <laughs> fair enough. I'm really hopeful that maybe this is a hidden gem. Maybe I'm going to come out of this feeling like I got that glimpse of safety not guaranteed. What if Jason? What if I love this movie? There's no chance of it. <laughs> and as a bottom five, Mike, I think the perfect choice for us both is the bottom five follow-ups for directors. So we're not doing bottom five Henrys or bottom five <laughs> books. We're going to do bottom five follow-ups. That yes. makes a lot more sense. Do you see Do you see how you're just a smarter guy than I am? <laughs> I just, I'm just going to go for whatever's in front of my face, right? The book of Henry. Well, we're not going to do the bottom five thes. So let's do the bottom five the book book. Yeah, we can do the bottom five book ofs. That's, that's probably out in Henry's. There are some bad ones. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. See, I'm already got. I'm already going. You're already my there. List. there it I'm is. already there. This work You're is done. There. <laughs> well, uh, I guess this is really a case of uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> Colin Trevorrow certainly played some stupid games, and I'm going to guess that this is my stupid prize for having given you Mandy. So, I'm up to the task. It can't possibly be as bad as Mandy, so I feel like I'm coming out on top here. We'll see. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to us as we got mandified and then went through our bottom five freakouts. Be sure to come back next time when Mike tackles the book of Henry. As always, we have been your hosts. I am Jay. And I'm Henry. (laughs) We'll see you next time. You say Rosalind Cash. 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 Are you going to use this to fix my bug up? Yeah. Is that your plan? All right. We got it? Got it. Okay.
good luck with that one. I I fucked that one pretty hard. And this is like that Henry Fonda thing all over again. 